You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to another edition of Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss. I have a severe allergy to exponential growth on a finite planet, and I'm here with you to explore the alternatives to the status quo via a rotation of esteemed guests with big solutions to our big economies. 16 years ago, I wrote a song called End of the World, which was a fixture in the life sets of my first band. Three years later, I joined a second band and wrote the lyrics to our first single, Safe Room, which ends with a repeated refrain, Safe Room Unsafe. Last year, the band released as a single, a staple of our live sets for over a decade, a deer caught in the headlights that had the line, There is nowhere to run. People often demanded why all my songs were all about the apocalypse. One person even threw the lyric sheet at my face and screamed, why do you have to be so negative? I don't get you. Forward to the bright new year of 2022, and one doesn't have to look very far to see something is uh, more than a little out of whack. In under three months, the year is certainly punching above its weight. Record flooding in southeast Queensland and New South Wales, devastating lives and bringing with it a third round of climatic disaster to the region in almost as many years. Meanwhile, the west of the continent swelters through record-breaking heatwaves. I myself, in an aborted attempt to have a holiday, averted a bushfire just an hour away from my home in a region that hadn't seen a bushfire, or 40 degree heat for that matter, for over 40 years. On top of that, empty shelves due to the twin horsemen of pestilence and famine. On top of that, almost every single global north country collapsing under the sheer weight of the farce generated by narcissistic political leaders long ago made soft and inept from being bought and sold off by sociopathic billionaires. On top of that, war is on the cards again. And if there was any confusion before regarding where Ukraine was on the map, that certainly is no longer the case. How much more clusterfuck can the House of Cards take before it finally topples over? I've noticed more people, particularly those who shrieked at my lyrics back in the day, (laughs) now talk about the apocalypse like normal conversation and, ironically, perhaps raise it up a little bit more frequently than I can personally stomach. Making up for lost time, perhaps. I was hoping to feel both smug and prepared by this point. Instead, I feel a bit like a deer caught in the house lights, the curtain blown open and feeling a certain kind of performance anxiety-induced freeze-over in the theatre of life. But so it goes until one day it finally doesn't. Until then, there is work to do and a collective consciousness to shift. Last episode, launched at the peak of the flood crisis, my interview with Charles Massey gave me some hope of regenerative agriculture as a way forward. The Fenner Conference on Sustainable Agriculture Just Gone, in which Charlie was keynote speaker, demonstrated that there are plenty of great minds doing great things out there, if only there was a political will to apply these in meaningful ways. That the conference was opened by John Hewson is a reminder that there was a time when the Liberal Party was still able to produce statesmen of note. I thought for this episode we might hang around in agriculture land. While Charles Massey has made the so-called fringe agriculture almost mainstream again, Dr Shane Simonson puts everything we know about growing stuff on its head. 
Shane operates a zero-input plot with his goats in the highlands of southeast Queensland. Thankfully, neither Shane, his goats, nor the farm were swept away by the floods, so he let me know it is still in good taste to broadcast his interview. Shane also runs a zero-input agriculture site where he posits growing information in addition to various perspectives on issues such as collapse. Shane and I found each other through mutual friends and past PGAP guests, Adun Wyborn and Michael Stass, both who are big on collapse, as it were. Now, it has become a bit of a trope every episode where I say the work or opinions of my guests have completely blown me away. I'm almost wishing I haven't overused the term now, but only to say that Shane and I cover many, many novel points in this episode, including why arrowroot and bunya nuts are part of the solution, how humans are learning to move on from being parasites towards symbiotes, why the extinction of the megafauna was a larger event than the Industrial Revolution, and Shane's upcoming science fiction novel. So Shane is on a very different level to mere mortals like myself, and it was all I could do to try to keep up. I'm not sure that I sit eye to eye with Shane on every issue. Certainly me, being a committed vegan, places us on different starting blocks from the get-go. But the point of PGAP has always been for hosts and guests to agree on one thing only, that infinite growth on a finite planet has limits, and to explore the myriad of ideas from there. I do need to make a disclaimer that Shane's opinions, like any PGAP guests, are his own only, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of PGAP or the supporters of this podcast, Sustainable Population Australia. PGAP merely asks the questions with an open mind and a desire for the guests to be responsible and account for their work and their views, rather than to be an echo chamber for whatever my own bias happens to be. After the interview with Shane, I'll play the first single from my band Shock Octopus back in 2011, Safe Room. I'm feeling quite raw from all the clusterfucking happening in the world at the moment, and this song was a perfect distilling of my raw catharsis of the world back in my 20s. As the future becomes an increasing source of anxiety, I think we all find ourselves wandering through our own past from time to time. Enjoy. Welcome back to PGAP and absolutely great to meet you, Shane. Firstly, it's a small world in Dumi Permi land, as you know, two of the previous guests on PGAP quite well. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Shane, your passions and how you know our mutual friends. Absolutely. And thank you very much for the opportunity to chat. It's um, a really amazing podcast that you're putting together here. I'm most enthused. Uh, going way back, I was a, a science and nature loving kid and I did a research degree that led me into biochemistry. I'd been uh, peak oil aware probably since the early 2000s and um, I left academia in the lead up to the global financial crisis where it was like, oh, this doesn't just look like some interesting, plausible sounding theory on the internet. It's like you can see it out your window if you're paying attention. And I left academia for other reasons too. I was gradually becoming disenchanted with it, but you know, I'm glad I had that opportunity to do something interesting in my in my youth. So I moved back to subtropical Queensland, and I've ended up on a experimental farm, uh, which I think has some overlap with permaculture principles. The previous guest that I know, uh, Mike Sass, he was actually one of the first people I 
talked to about peak oil back in the early 2000s online, never met him. And when I moved to my farm um, in the Sunshine Coast hinterland and thought, oh, I wonder whatever happened to him, tracked him down, he was one kilometre up the road from me. Well, that's handy. <laughs> yeah, for, for strange synchronicity. Eventually he got tired of the um, the, the wild um, tropical summers that we get up here because um, he's French originally, so he moved to Tasmania. Um, but yeah, that was a really strange little coincidence. Um, I also am friends with Dune Wyborn, who was on the interview. And um, I'm, I'm really interested in the work he's doing with uh, cultural experiments about how people can learn to work together. Because I'm, I'm a real hermit. I, I just live up here in the mountains on my own with my goats most of the time. And that's something I definitely need to branch off into as I get older. Uh, one thing I'm just curious is um, Mike left Queensland because, you know, he thought the north of Australia is going to have uh, problems with climate change and Tasmania is the best place to be. Obviously, you stayed in Queensland. Mm -hmm. um, is there a healthy competition <laughs> over which side of Australia uh, now lasts the next 10 years or um, am I just putting competitiveness where they shouldn't be. No, no, no. It's, it, I, I have very different views on things. If you look at the uh, climate projections in detail, the further you get from the equator, the more the climate changes. And Tasmania is likely to have a lot of heat and drought, but it's still going to have cold spells, which means you can't grow tropical stuff and it's hard to grow the temperate stuff. It's going to get whip, whipsawed all over the place. So um, my actual pick, if I had to pick anywhere in the world to go, would be the highland um, tropics, places that are near the equator but have elevation as a way of avoiding really high temperatures. And um, traditionally, they have been major stable centres of civilization. I remember when I was in Nairobi in Kenya, that's um, on the equator, but it's also, I think, 1,500 metres above sea level, and it was... 24 degrees every day yeah and that was just amazing it was like no pain yeah yeah <laughs> any, no, the, any day of the years yeah the, the tropics are basically not going to change much at all um if you're in lowland positions and away from the ocean so like inland um then you're going to get temperate extremes but you already like those places are already uninhabitable like they're in the middle of the sahara and places people already don't live now shane your claim to fame <laughs> is your zero input agriculture set up. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you're so dedicated to this that you've named your website after this phenomena. Um, so why don't you take me through a verbal tour of your property, the listeners as well. Um, tell us what you grow, how you grow it, and how zero input ag agriculture differs from other forms of gardening, agriculture and permaculture. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, the, the farm itself is 40 acres of ex-dairy farm in the um, Sunshine Coast hinterland. A century ago, it was vine scrub and it was cleared and then the goodness has been sucked out of it and sent to market over successive generations. So it's pretty clapped out. Um, most of it is low hills, which means that it's not really suitable for much more than goats and trees. Um, but luckily, I do a lot of that. Um, there's a few acres of relatively flat net land on the top of the hills um, that I use. It's close to the house, so it's convenient. So I use that for a little bit of vegetable cultivation, um, just for personal use and experimental purposes, um, and a bit of staple crop breeding. But it's a really thin, awkward clay soil. It's a cracking clay. And the only really slightly promising part of the property, is there's about two acres of creek flats that have relatively silty soil. And I've planted them with ice cream bean alleys. Um, there's an Inga um, alley foundation 
um, that's uh, developing a form of agroforestry through the um, tropical areas of the world that I've uh, emulated and I use those areas mostly for staple crop production. And um, yeah, if you're interested in what zero input agriculture means for me, so this was heavily inspired by reading um, a book by Steve Solomon called Gardening When It Counts. Uh, and it basically is looking at how people used to grow food um, before the Industrial Revolution, when you didn't just have water coming out of a hose whenever you wanted it. I use no irrigation. That's probably the most dramatic thing that people would look at and say, how do you ever grow anything? The way you do that is you look at seasonal growth. So there's always rain sometimes, unless you're living in you know, the Atacama Desert. Um, and also using opportunistic perennial crops that grow when the rain comes. Um, annuals are really important as well, but not always as reliable because year to year the climate can be quite variable here. But um, as long as you can store the seeds and keep them going, you can come back from that. The other thing, I don't use any imported fertility. So all of the, um, the small, more intensive areas that I um, increase the fertility, I use goat and goose manure and a little bit of biochar to improve soil texture. Um, the main thing I use is fallow. And for the areas that have the ice cream beans um, growing uh, as a legume, they basically supply a lot of the nutrients um, as like a direct um, biomass. Uh, I also don't do any pest control. So if a crop has serious pest issues, I just stop growing it. I don't get out the neem and the, the sprays and all of this stuff. I basically just say, is there something else that can do that job in my food ecosystem, in my agricultural ecosystem, that doesn't need me to run around trying to fight the pests off? because I've got better things to do. Um, and I don't use any mechanization either. I only use hand tools. It limits some things, but it also stops me from making bigger mistakes faster because I have to take my time. Often I start off thinking, you know, this is what I need to do. And after a year of doing a little bit of it, I realize, oh no, the plan was wrong. I'm better off trying something else. And if I had machinery speeding everything up, I would have, you know, done a thousand times more of that mistake before I realized that I needed to try something different. It does sound like a lot of work, and I almost feel a little bit bad having you on the podcast because oh. I've taken you away from needed backbreaking labour and I don't want your crops to die over the next hour or something. But see, this is the interesting thing. So um, I've been relatively lazy lately. Like I've done five years of full time, you know, being really dedicated to the farm, and I'm like, oh, I need a break. All the trees that I've planted out, they don't need watering, they don't need weeding, they don't need spraying, they're all fine. Um, the crops that I grow, I don't aim to eliminate the weeds. I actually, um, my aim is to modify the weed population to make it functional. So the parts of the vegetable garden, which I've abandoned, have gone to weeds, but they're good weeds that when I want the space back, they're no problem to deal with. They're, they're, they're non-woody, they're non-persistent. I've gotten rid of just the species that are the most problematic and used the well-behaved weeds as leverage to help push them out the door. Because um, definitely in the subtropics, like uh, particularly in a wet summer, you turn around for five minutes and everything's grown two meters tall. Like the the idea of control and elimination, it just doesn't happen here. So um, you have to work with what you've got. And um, yeah, zero input means if I forget to water the garden, I, I, I've never watered the garden, so it makes no difference. Yeah, so I've done a little bit of listening to your previous podcasts and research. I mean, I do that for all guests anyway, but mm. trying to get my... Um, head around some of these concepts because it does turn a lot of stuff on its head the way we approach gardening mm. and it's always been these kind of things that have been kind of itching at me even in the urban gardening projects I've been 
involved if it's like for example i've wondered on the obsession with backyard chickens given that almost everyone has to feed them monoculture <laughs> grains anyway which kind of poops in a party of the closed loop rep suburbia dream yeah um i know when i've worked on backyard community and even rural permaculture gardens i've always pushed for growing more legumes and starches when absolutely everyone else seems adamant on growing um leafy vegetables and <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to edit this out and I love the permaculture <laughs> movement but sometimes I joke that I know that I'm walking past the permi garden because it's a whole patch of dried out amaranth kind of seed yes yeah 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 so Shane what's going on here and what are your thoughts permaculture was a huge influence for me and I think in its original form that was inspired by the 1970s oil crisis and that early environmental movement it's wonderful but it fell into a really predictable trap of popularization. A similar thing happened, like if you look at a lot of the founding of religions, like early Buddhism was really extreme, like what it demanded of people to be a Buddhist. The aim was to sit on a rock for your whole life and then you know, vanish into a puff of smoke. And as that got rolled out to more and more people, obviously everyone couldn't do that. So instead it became watered down into a more functional version for people living ordinary lives. And I think permaculture did a similar thing. So the original design with like all of the different zones, it's now trapped in zone one. I mean, look at retro suburbia. Um, that, that's the new goal is like to be living in suburbia with a green um, veneer over the top of it. Suburbia only became possible in the 1950s because of cheap cars fueled by cheap oil. And at some point in the future, they're going away and it's looking unlikely they're gonna be smoothly replaced with electric cars, at least for the bulk of the population. Basically, I can understand why people living in suburbia focus on vegetables. It's the best return on investment in a small space. But at some point in the future, and it may not be in the near future, it might be generations away, um, we're going to have to leave suburbia. It's going to be a misallocated investment of resources, and it's just not going to function anymore. Detroit is probably a great example of um, when it lost its car industry, and there was just no reason for all of those people to be packed into those suburbs anymore. It just gradually disintegrated piece by piece. And now there's people grazing sheep through all of the um, the abandoned lots. Probably a glimpse of what's in our future. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to, to get to your example with the chickens, basically what you're doing is you're taking industrial grains that are grown with oil. And I don't care if they're organic and industrial. That just means you need like 30% extra oil to get the grain. You take that grain when you put it in a chicken, you throw away 50% of the protein and 90% of the calories to make eggs, and then you call that production. So it's really boutique industrial battery farm is what a backyard chicken is in suburbia. You know, like they're called to grow a lot of the European crops again it seems mm. like you know wasn't it such a bad thing that the colonists did and look here we are doing it again but it's different this time i, I don't know yeah, there's yeah. just something about it that which is why i saw <laughs> your notes that you're working towards domesticating bunion nuts which oh yes excited yes mainly because they're underappreciated nut native to australia but also they're very starchy i mm -hmm. think yeah yeah it's predominantly starch i see in your notes that you have reservations with grains potatoes and tree crops so mm -hmm. it makes me kind of wonder sometimes <laughs> what's left so yeah, yeah um yeah. bunion nuts <laughs> yes yeah, yeah so um a, a big emphasis on my farm uh, is staple crops because i think that's a big blind spot for permaculture i fully understand it when you can buy a bag of rice for like two dollars and it's almost invisible. It's like that old thing about, you know, asking a fish, like, how's the water today? 
And the fish doesn't even have a concept of water because it's just always been surrounded by it its whole life. So um, under current conditions, it makes sense to just, you know, not pay attention to staple crops. But at some point in the future, they're likely to be critical and growing them at a scale with reliability to actually survive on them um, without lots of inputs is challenging. Like it's something that used to take, you know, half of the time of dedicated peasants who had a long culture of doing it um, in order to actually make it work. And we're expecting, you know, a single person to do it within a few years. Um, my, my estimate's going to take me at least 20 years to get the system really working well, you know, just to get started. Anyway, bunya nuts. They're probably one of the biggest potential, untapped potential staple tree crops in the world. Um, amazing, amazing plants. The trouble is I've had a look at the remnant diversity that's around the area because we live in the middle of, of what's left, basically, of, of wild bunyas. And there's a bit of genetic diversity to work with. Um, but most of the time a new crop becomes domesticated, it happens through a hybridization event. And you might think, oh, what's that all about? It's happened in our own lifetime, macadamia nuts. So there are four wild species of macadamia. And in the last century, uh, a random collector took two of them and they hybridized. And those hybrid seedlings are now the foundation for a multi-million dollar macadamia industry. Because when you mix two species together, um, you can pull out all sorts of weird combinations, the genetics, to get just what you want as a crop. And if you look at all the domestic crops that humans grow, apples, wheat, pretty much everything comes from a hybrid origin when you go back to where it came from wild species. Humans themselves are a hybrid species. We've got like a pinch of Neanderthal and a little bit of Denisovan and all sorts of other things that we picked up along the way. It's just how biology works. It's a way to do a quantum leap kind of in evolution. So with the bunya nut, I had to have a look around and figure out are there any other species that can hybridize with it and luckily because of our gondwan and history there is a relative related species in southern brazil you know it's the other side of gondwana land over there and it does hybridize with bunya nuts there are um, examples of that happening so i've basically assembled all of the remnant um, bunya diversity and this south american species and my plan is to do a mass hybridization um, before i die i'm in my 40s now the trees take about 20 years to mature, so I'm almost certainly going to get one generation out of me, like in my 60s. Maybe I'll make it to my 80s and get a second generation of like hybrids. Um, I don't think I can bet on that. So the plan is basically hybridize them once and distribute those seeds all over the world because it's a crop that can potentially grow everywhere from Cairns to Hobart. Huge range of um, environmental um, variability. It's a lot more frost tolerant than people realize as well. And that's before you start breeding it. You could go further with that. Um, there's other relatives in Chile that are just completely covered in snow, like they're very cold tolerant. And they're also compatible with livestock. So anywhere that you're grazing cattle and sheep, you could also have bunya nuts growing for shade and windbreaks that provide a fairly reliable form of calories every year. What's your position with animal rearing? You know, we have um, Savoy on the one side of <laughs> carpeting the planet with... Um, animals and veganic permaculture on the other mm. um, where where do you see yourself within that kind of spectrum animals are an absolutely essential part of the ecosystem as it functioned um, in the past and a major uh, well you want to talk about you know collapse and decline um, the extinction of megafauna through human influence all over the planet in the, in that 30 to fifty thousand years ago was the biggest ecological change that's happened. Like the Industrial Revolution pales in comparison 
in terms of what it's done to the planet. For example, bunya nuts, uh, bunyas used to grow over half of Queensland, and now they're in probably 5%. Um, but that was back when the megafauna were keeping the forests healthy. Once the megafauna were gone, it flipped into a fire-dependent system, and the bunyas can't tolerate that very well. That story is repeated all over the entire planet. So I think Alan Savory has done amazing um, work getting to the heart of what's going on with how animals interact with vegetation and ecosystems. I did um, intensive rotational grazing with my beef herd when I still had it, and I saw the results. It's, it absolutely works. And I think with my goats, if I was just looking in terms of absolute production, um, my paddocks are definitely stagnating. But because I'm in a humid environment, I can tolerate that. Every year when it gets wet, all the biomass breaks down and it resets itself. Uh, that kind of dynamic is helping shift it back towards a forest, which is what I actually want that's better for the goats and for this particular um, high rainfall ecosystem. But I see the current way that we manage the ecosystem as fundamentally broken, dividing it up into lots of little tiny packages that we have to uh, manage individually with fences between them. Um, makes it extremely difficult to manage animal herds properly so that they have the correct impact on the landscape. Alan Savory's observation that it isn't about overgrazing or undergrazing, those concepts are not fit for purpose because it's about dynamics. It's about having the livestock arrive at the right time when the plants are sufficiently grown, like they've completed their life cycle, they've reproduced, the impact comes all at once, knocks it all back and, and resets the whole um, the whole ecosystem, and then the animals move on and allow it to recover. Um, that kind of thing can only happen on a continent-wide scale. And it used to happen in Australia. So I, I don't know if you know this, but seasonal rainforests used to be almost down to Alice Springs, and they would act as a biotic pump that would bring the monsoon reliably into the heart of the continent. And what probably happened is that there were megafauna that migrated north during the wet season and then back to the south of the continent when the, the rains flipped around and you get the Mediterranean rains in the winter in the south. And that system used to keep Australia way more functional than it, uh, than it currently is now. So even aiming to go back to the way it was, you know, 200 years ago before white people turned it up and trashed it even more, I, I would say that's too low a bar. Um, in terms of what we could potentially do with the continent, don't look back, look forwards. There's, um, there's way more potential there. Well, Shane, you're uh, <laughs> smashing my uh, knowledge and perception and uh, understanding of the world on many levels. All right, well, in that case, smash my um, world concept of grains and legumes. So I've got reservations about tree crops for many reasons. Um, I wrote an article on my blog about this called Chesterton's Fence Around the Food Forest, um, explaining uh, possible reasons why there haven't been any tree-dependent civilizations that could stand much of a shake-up. The two counter-examples are probably Amazonia, um, we now realize was basically a giant food forest, but when the epidemic diseases arrived, they basically vanished without a trace. Um, so that kind of is a counter, bit of counter evidence to the idea that food forests are a more resilient form of agriculture. Um, the other one was the Polynesians that used breadfruit. And when colonists turn up, um, they actually chopped all of the breadfruit trees down because the natives just sat around all day doing nothing and they wouldn't work for their new masters. How do you stop people chopping down your forests? It's, um, it, it's basically a big weak point for asymmetrical um, culture clashes. Um, and if you look at Middle East culture, um, when they had wars, they would often chop down the enemy's orchards because it would take you know, generations for them to grow back. So particularly if there's a chaotic period in history ahead, 
planting a food forest, you know, maybe people are just going to chop it down for firewood if they're desperate. Um, the the dynamics of it make it difficult. After that, you look at grains, which tend to be, you know, the, the thing you immediately think of when you think of civilization. Um, they're very useful because they're storable and transportable and they allow more complex societies to kind of form around them. The trouble is they all of these grain-dependent civilizations emerged at around about the same time around the planet um, within the last, like, five to 10,000 years, and that was when the global climate flipped into a really stable and predictable period of time, which is really unusual. And from my own experience trialing grains, you need moisture when you're growing the crop and then you need dry weather when you're harvesting and preserving it and if you don't have that predictable wet dry cycle with crop failures and that happened fairly regularly in um, pre-industrial civilizations um, but you could get away with one crop failure and you know survive on the stored food for one year and then kind of claw your way back and if we're moving into a period of unstable climate that may become impossible like grain-based civilization may not even pre-industrial forms might become very difficult under places where it previously was possible. Um, for my local trials, I've only found um, maize. It's the only crop I've been able to get past the birds, and only because I was lucky to get genetics that I've developed into a parrot-resistant strain. Probably I would be lucky if two out of three years I get a crop out of it, which I don't think is quite enough to call it a staple. So, so Shane, what am I allowed to eat then? Am I uh, as a nuts and goat? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be enough. That'd be enough. I mean, bunyas are a little bit seasonal as well, and they don't store particularly well. You have to process them really carefully if you want to do long-term storage. The alternative to that are tuber-based staples, so um, sweet potato and cassava um, and potato potato. Um, they tend to only be viable in climates that are consistently wet um, because they don't store very well. So you need to have multiple crops coming on throughout the year. Um, otherwise, you're going to have long periods where you've got no food to fall back on. And um, if you look around societies that rely on tuber crops, they tend to be in the tropics, in the wet tropics. Um, the exceptions would be uh, maritime climates uh, like um, Britain and parts of Tasmania, where you get reliably kind of cool, damp breezes coming off the ocean. The trouble with tubers, other than the storage, is their unreliability. Um, particularly pests and diseases can be a problem because they're often grown vegetatively. You don't have a lot of genetic diversity. And if you lose all of your tuber stocks, starting again is really, really slow. Um, so I was growing potatoes here really well, but we had a really bad uh, spring recently where I lost all of my tuber stock. And I'm like, do I want to start from scratch and then have this happen again? Because it's it basically was a big highlight that it was incompatible with the climate that I actually had if I wanted reliability. See, this is the other thing as well. Like you can grow... You know, I grew an acre of potatoes and we had all these potatoes and, you know, it's so easy. If you only do that once and say, oh, now I can be sustainable, you're kidding yourself because you have to be able to do that year after year after year. And often I've grown a crop once and it's like, oh, this is beautiful. It grew really well for me. I've never been able to reproduce that success because that year just had the right combination of, you know, the rain came at the right time and then it was dry at the right time or the pests hadn't figured out that they could eat it yet. And when I scaled it up, suddenly it was a bonanza for them. So that reliability takes decades to be really sure that you've got it right. There's, there's no way around that. You don't know what you know the, the weather's gonna be like in 10 years time and like, until you actually try growing the crop. So there is an alternative though, there is an alternative. Tell me the alternative. <laughs> so the crop that I am most excited about that works really well under my conditions is arrowroot, canna, which lots of permaculturalists grow it. 
Um, like a lot of permicrops, not, ma not that many people eat it very regularly. It's an example of a tuber crop that's for, um, intended for starch production. So you don't eat the whole thing like a potato. You grind it up and you extract the starch out of it, which you can then dry and store. So that gives you storage. And pure starch is actually superior for storage than grain. Um, grains actually go off after a few years, even if you do everything perfectly. Like they, the oils go rancid in them and the, the protein gets infested with weevils and stuff. Um, it, 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 it's difficult to do it for more than a few years, particularly in a humid climate like I've got. Um, and also pure starch has double the energy density of grains, which makes it even more functional if you want to transport it over long distances and actually build a society with it. The best thing about it, though, is that these particular tuber crops, they're weedy and opportunistic perennials. So once you've got them established, they'll survive through dry periods. But when the rain comes, whenever it comes, that's when they grow. So you can build up stands of these things and basically they mostly take care of themselves. I was just thinking and no downside like other weedy tubers like Jerusalem artichokes where, yes, they grow prolifically, too mm. prolifically, yes. um, but they twist your guts when you try to eat them. So arrowroot works for me because I've got the genetic diversity together and I've started breeding it and I've got something to work with to get it locally adapted. Um, cassava is also a crop that can work like this. My soil isn't great for it and my bandicoots dig it up and eat it, so it doesn't work for me. But a few kilometers up the road where they don't have bandicoots, it could be fine if they've got sandier soil. Um, the other crop that I'm really interested in developing is um, cattails or typha. You know, the one that looks like dag dagwood dogs that you see growing in swamps. So it's got starchy roots. It's one of the biggest hunter-gatherer important crops of all time. Like it's such a major form of um, energy. Um, the North American Indians used to have wars over access to swamps where the cattails grew because it was so important for survival. Trials in the around World War II found that you get five times as much starch per acre from it compared to maize. So it's just phenomenally productive and no one's really done any breeding work with it. So that's something I'm interested to do in the future. I've built a few small wetlands. I don't have a lot of wet space. Um, there'd probably be other places where they have, you know, 10% of the North American continent used to be wetlands before it was all drained to grow corn. And you could be producing five times as much energy out of it by growing cattails instead if you hadn't have, you know, drained all the water away and started erosion. This is the interesting thing. Growing a crop is only the first and often easiest part of making it part of your life. So a lot of the times I'll grow a new crop and it's like, you know, it gets through all the hurdles and it grows fine. And then I'm like, now what do I do with it? Um, so maize is a perfect example for this. I've been growing it for years. And last summer, thing, the stars aligned and I got a really big crop out of it. I'm like, what am I going to do with all of this? I still hadn't quite figured out how to um, prepare it properly. You have to soak it in um, wood ash to nixtamalize it, to get the skin off it. Um, and then do I make tortillas, which apparently in Central America, it takes a young girl about five years of practicing every day to make good tortillas from maize. Like it's not a trivial step. Even if I could make perfect tortillas, it would probably take me a lifetime before I actually wanted to eat tortillas. Maybe never. Like I've grown up on different food. So it, will I always feel like you know, I'm dreaming about, you know, French fries and hamburgers because that's what I ate for the first 30 years of my life. And now I'm forced to eat, you know, corn tortillas, these weird things. I see the real important changes are cultural, not just in terms of the skills of knowing what to do with the output of the crops, 
but of the psychology of actually wanting to eat them. Like that, that's probably multi-generational. So um, I know you mentioned a little bit before about, um, and, and what I've read too, and this is another thing that um, on the multitude of things you do that blow my mind, but <laughs> the, the idea of changing the space to suit the plant. No, you're saying um, changing the plant to suit the space. Yes. I, I guess... When I first came across the term, um, it was almost like there seemed to be analogies, you know, around the GM controversy, Monsanto, um, mm. at all. But I suspect you're not splicing DNA so much as doing an intense version of um, hybridization um, mm. in a short time frame, or <laughs> as I thought, like hybridization on steroids. Is that a fair <laughs> enough analogy, or am I? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, absolutely. So. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that all of the crops we have today were created by illiterate farmers by accident um, who didn't even have like cell theory or germ theory. Like they, they knew nothing of what we know today. A, a really great example of what is possible um, was a person called Luther Burbank. So he was a self-taught plant breeder in the 1800s in the United States. And he basically just crossed everything with everything. All the things that people, you know, the scientists of the day and even scientists today would say, oh, you can't do that. He just did it and it worked. Um, one project I learned about him recently, the apple family, Rosaceae, has like apples and pears and plums and a whole lot of ornamentals and semi-edible things as well. Um, one of the many, many projects that he did was just crossing them all. And pretty much all of them crossed and produced viable seed. Um, he, he produced the plum cot, you know, crossing plums and apricots, um, which you, a lot of people have seen in the shops. And that's probably like the tiny shallow end of what he showed was possible. Um, so yeah, any, anyone who has an interest in this and takes the time and spends some attention can draw together all sorts of crazy genetic combinations that no one's ever done before. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. And people are doing it all around the world. Not everything I do is breeding though. A lot of it is just selection. With my tomatoes, um, I trialed probably a hundred different varieties treated them terribly like most of them looked like they were half dead and you know didn't get anything out of them so i did a lot of work and didn't get a crop so you have to be prepared to do that a little bit in the beginning but there was one particular variety that no matter what i did to it it just grew fine it produced loads of tomatoes the quality was good like they're they're dense um the fruit fly didn't sting it um, i looked into the history of that particular variety um and it probably comes from further back in the domestication process um, so there's wild tomatoes that grow in the northern part of South America. They were domesticated a bit. Some of them were taken to Central America, to like Mexico, but they were genetically bottlenecked in the process, so they're not quite as vigorous as they used to be. Those varieties um, were the ancestor of this particular strain that popped up in my trials and turned out to be really, really strong. Um, but compared, all the other tomatoes were bottlenecked again when they were taken to Europe, and then again when they were transported back to North America. So the average tomato that you like buy in the nursery to grow is so incredibly inbred that it can't stand up on its own anymore. You have to like plug it into, um, you know, put an IV in its arm basically to keep it alive. So yeah, finding the varieties that suit the soil and the climate and the pests that you already have, it's a little bit of work to begin, but then once you have those good varieties, it's clean sailing from there. Um, yeah, another good example with that is um, vegetable legumes, which I've only just recently figured out. So I used to try growing the common like snap beans and they'd get pests and the yields would be really poor. And I tried lots of different varieties and nothing really worked all that well. Um, and I grow snow peas as well. 
And when I tried to save seeds, the parrots would come in and destroy them. And they had a really short harvest season. Like, I didn't like that. Like, spring got warm too quickly and they got covered in mildew. It was just, it wasn't worth the effort to grow them. They were a, a negative return on investment. So I kept, you know, trying different things. And I finally got on to Lab Lab Bean. So this is grown all through Southeast Asia as a vegetable legume, but almost nobody knows about it in Australia. And the original strains I tried were a, uh, a pasture legume that like you grow out in cow paddocks. Horrible stuff. But I finally got some of the Southeast Asian genetics. They grow like crazy. Um, and you can eat the leaves, you can eat the young pods, you can eat the flowers, and they keep producing for months and months and months. Um, and that's another thing I forgot to mention before. Um, even just looking at vegetable production, what most people try to emulate is basically market gardening, which is an industrialized form of vegetable production that, you know, you go back a few centuries and it was on the margins of cities, um, like these, these little intensive um, farms that would produce products that they could ship into the center of the town. A really good example of that phenomenon is kale versus broccoli. So they're the same basic species. The wild form is closer to kale. And if you inbreed and inbreed and inbreed over many, many generations, you can end up with something like broccoli. So broccoli is actually a really, really weak plant compared to kale. You've got to get conditions just perfect in order to produce a nice big broccoli head. And if a pest turns up one day, it eats the whole head and you've got nothing. Or if you wait three days too long, it starts turning into little inedible flowers, you get nothing. So why did we bother making broccoli? The reason why is for commerce. So if you try and pick kale leaves and take them five kilometers down the road to market, they've wilted before you've even got to the farm gate. But broccoli with that big compact head, you can stick it in an ox cart and drag it around all day and it's still edible. So kale has only come back into commercial production because of refrigeration and because you can like spray mist all over it and put it in plastic packaging in like nitrogen atmospheres. You go back into the 1950s, there was no kale in the shops because in the shops because it would all be inedible. Like it would all be so wilted that you couldn't eat it. But for home production, kale is perfect because it keeps producing a gradual crop over many, many, many months, like years even. Whereas people feel like they need to force themselves to grow broccoli at home. Our whole mindset about what we want to grow even as vegetables is warped by our industrial culture. And we kind of need to unlearn that and take a huge step back in order to make even vegetable growing work well, let alone staples. Wow, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> More things that I had um, no idea about. So let's go from the plant world and mm -hmm. bring what you do toward a more panoramic assessment of the human predicament. Mm -hmm. I note in your blog site the notion of humans moving away from being parasites to symbiotes. Mm -hmm. So what are we doing now that is particularly parasitical and how can we be more symbiotic? When you look at um, different species that interact with each other, they usually start out with one just completely eating the other and then gradually over time they'll take a bite without eating the whole animal um, and then a little bit further down the road they end up in a symbiotic relationship where they're mutually benefiting each other in a more obvious way. Uh, a really good example of that is with goats. So when goats were still wild, we'd just hunt them for their meat. When they were first domesticated for a long time, they were just domesticated for meat. Like you had to kill the whole animal to, to get a product. But then there was the second uh, secondary products revolution in agriculture, and we learned how to extract milk from the goat without killing the whole animal. Or if you want to look at the Maasai, they learned to harvest blood from their cattle without having to kill the whole animal as well. That, that's a, another direction that you can take it. 
So um, I think the whole of human society relating to the whole of ecosystem is going through a similar process. So very early in our human history, we were more like predators. We just kind of rampaged out and took everything that we could. Um, agriculturalists, I think, are more at a parasitic stage where we're clinging on to our host and, and doing it some harm without completely destroying it. And though industrialization has kind of tipped that out of balance. Something next is probably coming after that, where we come into a, a more sustainable balance in the long term, where we're more symbiotic. So that, that's what I'm kind of hoping for in the future and, and actively working towards every day. And demonstrating some case examples of a more symbiotic way of living. Now, of course, if we keep being parasitical, we're going to hit the brick wall of limits to growth. Now, is it fair for me to say that you're, you are a little bit doomy and that you believe we're heading for a soft collapse? Or am I paraphrasing you terribly? <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm probably closest to um, John Michael Greer with Ecosophia in seeing that this is just yet another wave of up and down that all living systems go through. And I actually think that collapse is probably a necessary part of the evolution of a system. Um, uh, for an analogy with a tree eventually like disintegrating and collapsing, it's survived by a smaller, simpler seed that's more durable that will then grow again in the future. And I see permaculture as needing to be like a seed rather than trying to sustain and prop up the world as we have it today. I see it being more like the, um, you know, the medieval monasteries that hung on to some of the useful aspects of like the, the giant Roman civilization and pass them on to what's going to come afterwards. And yeah, I, I definitely think there's a slow collapse coming. The slow is a relative term. Um, given how complicated things are, we could be in for a relatively rapid simplification, but there's still a lot of resources on hand and a lot of uh, wasteful consumption happening in the system that could be cut out like overnight. So yeah, that, that's my guess in the next few generations that we're going to see fairly rapid s steps in simplification followed by, you know, like another generation of, you know, things seeming relatively stable. Yeah, excellent. And just talking about um, the larger turning into the smaller, mm. um, are you okay for the inevitable question on population? <laughs> oh, yes, um, yes, yes. PGAP is supported by Sustainable Population Australia after all, so this controversial topic, therefore, needs yes. to come out. <laughs> I think it's a really important topic too. So um, I just do a thought experiment. So at the moment, if you look at the world as a whole, we have a 2% birth rate and a 1% death rate. And that, that gives you a net increase of 1% per year, which doesn't sound like much, but it means the population doubles every 70 years, which is crazy. Um, like after thousands of years of being under a billion people, once industrialization hit, we basically went vertical in population and something is going to have to happen to turn that trend around. So simple thought experiment in that current world, if you know a hundred people in, in your immediate circle, that means that every year there are two babies in that circle and one funeral. So it's like, you know, that's life. You know, you see babies, you see funerals. That's just you know, people turning over. Imagine a future world where that, uh, the rate of birth and death are reversed. So you've got a 1% birth rate and a 2% death rate um, and a, a net 1% decrease every year. And suddenly you're halving the population in 70 years. And that deals with a lot of the problems that we currently have with the impact of human society on the planet. And in your little imaginary thought experiment, that now means that instead of two babies and one funeral, there's one baby and two funerals. 
that's not an apocalypse if you're living through it year by year. You, you probably barely notice any change other than the economic ramifications because it flows through the demographics, obviously. And it's probably not likely to happen smoothly. There's going to be jumps where something happens that shakes, you know, some of the population off the tree. More broadly, I don't think that governments are in a position to really control demographics. I, I think they they can only respond. It, it's Look at China, basically. They are an example of a, a very authoritarian society that tried to control demographics and they sort of succeeded, but it had a whole lot of unintended consequences and it probably is going to do more harm than good. So I think it's going to happen organically. A lot of that in the Western world is probably going to be people just not reaching 80s anymore. Like if you don't have blood pressure medication, you're not likely to last that extra 10 years. Something will take you out first. And this is a really interesting thought. So have you ever heard of a genetic meltdown? A genetic meltdown. So in large, slowly reproducing species like humans or, or bigger animals, there's a problem that can potentially arise. So every time a baby is born, a human baby is born, it's got about 100, 200 new mutations that just pop up randomly in its genome. Most of those don't do anything. Once in a blue moon, one of them will be really damaging and that, that baby will not be viable, like it won't be born. But there's a reasonably uh, percentage of those mutations that are just a little bit negative. So it's quite possible for that child to be born and grow up and, you know, continue the cycle. Um, but they're just a little bit weaker than their previous generation. If you do that generation by generation, eventually those minor mutations accumulate to the point that fertility just falls off a cliff. And this has been documented in other species um, like the, the mammoths, um, looking at their DNA over time as they became extinct. For quite a long period of time after their population had, uh, dynamics had changed, they were accumulating these mutations that were basically ruining the viability of the species. Humans seem to be going through a similar process. Um, the models I've seen say five to ten generations of women only having two children each and both of them reaching adulthood. Even if you've got zero population growth, eventually you're going to hit a point where there's so many minor damaging mutations in the population that you just can't go forward anymore. Ironically, a, a collapse of industrial civilization and a return to the pre-industrial demographics where women had many children and only a small number of them made it to reproducing adulthood may actually save the human species, um, as well as saving the biosphere by you know, ending the impacts of industrial civilization. So it, it's kind of grim, but plagues and wars and you know all these horrible ways that we think of medieval people dying aren't the only ways for a society to manage that dynamic. You can also have monastic living. Um, like the, the tradition used to be that you'd have three sons, one would inherit the farm, one would go into the army, and the other one would go to the church. And the second and third son probably weren't going to get married and have children. So yeah, that's a, that's a pretty heavy idea, and most people don't want to think about it. Um, but you know, even with all of the technology in the world, if we end up as a population of a species with all of these little tiny mutations scattered across the genome, most of them unique to each individual because they're all different, um, even CRISPR couldn't save us from that. Like if you wanted to go into the genome and fix those mutations one at a time, it just wouldn't be practical because every person has a different, you know, subtle mutation. And thanks for bringing um, <laughs> genetics into the conversation again. It's very you, Shane. I love it. Yeah, just, just a quick observation. In the meantime, do you see a role for, um, you know, non-coercive and cooperative 
family planning and access to contraception, you know, for women around the world who don't have access to much of this, particularly in the post-COVID world, uh, where that's, Mm. you know, being shoved under the table. And secondly, what do you say to many in the environmental movement who seem to give an idea that um, the population can almost be infinite Mm. if it weren't for um, the wasteful practices of people in the global north and the um, global inequity of wealth. On a broad scale, my view is probably pretty bleak. Well, even people living today in most parts of the world, this is just daily reality. Like, children get sick and die, people get sick and die, not many people make it into extreme old age with, like, a, you know, a huge amount of retirement funding so that they can, you know, go on cruises. Uh, What has become culturally normal for us uh, in the global north is extremely strange. And it's just a little tiny blip in human culture. And it seems to be making us fairly miserable. The typical person living in the global north is like chronically lonely, disconnected from everyone around them. Their their daily activities for most of their life is just a corporate grind. um, And their, their built landscape is like deeply depressing and disorienting. So I'm not convinced that we are in a position where we can say that we have the best life. And I don't think looking at the past tells us all of the options about what we could do in the future to organise society differently. I I think we have to be a lot more creative because we've got a whole bunch of tools coming together as a result of industrialization that we never had before. And we really have to think about what we can do with them rather than just trying to emulate the past. But yeah, um, in terms of short-term family planning and contraception for people who want it, I think is a great idea. But I don't know, the reality is that that demographic transition um, coupled with some kind of weird voluntarily austere lifestyle, I I think it's a pipe dream. I think neither parts of that recipe for success are sustainable without industrialization underneath it. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably going to get a whole lot of hate mail from this, but I'm, I'm not advocating for this. It's just how I see the flow of history pushing society along. No, I haven't heard that angle before, so I'm going to be absorbing it over the next, especially when I um, uh, listen back to the interview. Mm. Um, So let's wrap this up with your own, I imagine, unique vision (laughs) for a post-growth world. Um, What would our day-to-day look like if we're more symbiotic? What will our communities and economic systems look like? And most importantly, will the hybridised plants still look friendly or will they look more like something out of the Triffids? I definitely think we're only at the beginning of our relationship with plants and with the biosphere as a whole. Um, I'm currently writing a science fiction novel. I, I mentioned before I'm taking a little bit of a break from farming all day long. Yeah, so it's a science fiction, but it's not the usual science fiction, which is all rockets and robots and flying all over the the universe and, you know, kissing sexy-looking aliens. Um, It's probably (laughs) more like a speculative fiction, but it is based on hard science. So it's exploring a world set thousands of years in the future where biological technology has replaced industrialization, and it's post-apocalyptic, but the apocalypse happened so long ago that no one even thinks about it anymore. Like, how many people today think about the Bronze Age collapse or the extinction of the megafauna? It's, like, not even on our radar, and it was probably the biggest change in our history. I mean, bigger than industrialization in many ways, and 
people don't think about it anymore. So I think today, industrialization will just be forgotten if you go far enough into the future. Um, people will barely believe, even if you told them what happened today. If anyone is interested in contacting me to be a beta reader, I'm aiming to have the draft done by the end of the year and to get it published by the end of next year. And I would love people who um, are coming from that kind of Duma um, biopunk kind of uh, perspective um, to see if they would in, be interested in this story and if they like it. So yeah, they're, they're my target audience basically. So, so get in touch with me if you want to look at that. Well, I think you've reached uh, a target audience in this podcast. And if our <laughs> lovely listeners want to find mm. out more about you and the great work that you do, or if mm. they would like to be a beta reader, um, where can they go and how can they say hi? Yes, so um, main contact point is through my uh, blog at zeroinputagriculture.com. There's a backlog of, I think, over 100 articles now which have plant profiles, techniques I use, and philosophical meanderings about all sorts of aspects about collapse and sustainability and ecology and history and culture and society. It's, um, yeah, I try to mix it up and make sure it's like, here's a pretty plant and here's some crazy aspect of um, how biology or society works to, to give everyone a bit of it interesting. Um, so output on that is slowed a little bit while I'm drafting, but um, I still occasionally put an article up there. I sell seeds from my blog if you're interested in getting some of the genetics that has gotten through my incredibly difficult gauntlet and will actually grow, at least under my conditions, um, without almost any support from me, um, and that I actually recommend for eating, like I eat them regularly myself. And yeah, uh, you can contact me through the uh, blog if you want to get involved as a beta reader. And I also have uh, previous podcast interviews on The Abundant Edge and Eco Convos with Dan, if you um, want to listen to me blather on a bit more. Well, thank you so much, Shane, being able to wrap up just before um, you go to get tech So <laughs> thank you so much. I had a blast. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk. And if you ever want me back, I've, I'm sure I've got other things I can go on about. Down our walls, I'm watching from the monitor. 
Strength in man when there's the rest of food right now when I run dry Door, seal, air, time will be alright If we don't move for the safe food If we don't move for the safe food For that reboot family comes first Waited out the safe food Waited out the safe food Dripping down the wall, soaking in the floor. We're knocking at the door, dripping down the wall, soaking in the floor. We're knocking at the door, dripping down the wall, soaking in the floor. We'd say, in here, sleep time, don't lie. Listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast. I'm your host Michael Bayless. We just heard the track Safe Room from Shock Octopus, and before this, my interview with Dr. Shane Simonson from the Zero Input Agriculture. As I'm recording the intro and outro for this episode, we've just drawn close to day one of the Fenner Conference, Making Australian Agriculture Sustainable. Like everything else in the pandemic years, the conference, proudly supported by Sustainable Population Australia, who support this podcast as well, was delayed by almost two years. Thankfully, a dogged persistence paid off and some great speakers have shared some great insights in how to meet the future challenges of growing food in a world's driest continent with the most unreliable rainfall, all getting worse by the millisecond from the aggregate human impact. Bless us all. Extraordinary times require extraordinary ideas and Dr. Jane Simonson's unconventional perspectives on the way he approaches food growing as a way he sees the world, uh, essential aspects to bring to the table. So, what did you think to this interview, <laughs> dare I ask? What are your thoughts on zero input agriculture, on the megafauna, on the idea that one day we can be symbiotic again with the rest of the planet? on how we approach human population into the future. Let your thoughts and feelings know by contacting PGAP. Subscribe to us on our website or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Citra, etc. Rate and review PGAP on Apple Podcasts. Share the episode with your friends, families, and especially your enemies. Join us next time for more big ideas for us to think smaller. Until then, folks. Until then. <laughs>